And good evening, everyone. That's terrible to start a show and you have a frog jumping out of your throat. Anyway, welcome. Welcome, welcome to the other side of midnight. That kind of magical time between dusk and dawn where the things you would kind of pass by during daytime and say, oh, come on, give me a break. Well, we don't pass by them at this time of night. So wherever you are on this rotating planet, morning, afternoon, or evening, welcome one and all. Tonight's show is going to be very, very curious. Very curious indeed. Now, I heard something weird in my ear, so I'm not sure what that means. But um, we will proceed as if I didn't hear something weird in my ear. And so let me start with the top of the news, which is all about Mars. Um, That is going to feed into our conversation later on this morning with Chris. So let me begin with that. As you may or may not know, this week, NASA held a press conference on Thursday. And the press conference was highly anticipated It was embargoed by the agency as well as by Science Magazine, which is the preeminent peer-reviewed science journal that NASA scientists and other scientists publish, uh, you know, science news around the world. And as they usually do, they don't want to be scooped, so they embargo the story. So although we have kind of a hint of what might be discussed in, in detail, they don't go into details. Well, this, these hints flying around turned out to be very accurate because what NASA announced in a very, very cautious, very, very conservative manner is they've now made two discoveries that pretty much lock in the idea that there could have been, and let me do this, that there could have been life on Mars uh, at some point in the past. The first discovery had to do with drilling, curiosity, carries a very interesting tool set for drills down two or three inches into rock surfaces because if you're looking at the surfaces of rocks, all kinds of stuff has happened to the surface. So you want to get below the surface to where there's pristine samples and you can um, uh, basically sample materials that are very, very old. And as you all know, rocks are formed from muds and these particular rocks are called mudstones. So in this case, the mud turned into rock uh, was actually the process that we're looking at. So they did the drilling many, many months ago, maybe six months ago, and they were been analyzing and analyzing. And they've now come up with the idea and, and, and the data that there is, in fact, ancient organics present in these very ancient rocks going back something like uh, three, three and a half billion years on Mars. Well, that was one piece of news. I mean, the the idea that you're finding fragments of more complex organic molecules, that's that's not untoward. We kind of expected that, although to have it as real data as opposed to a speculation is really what we needed. The other thing that was much more interesting to me and harkens back literally 100 plus years to the work of Percival Lowell, who carried out incredibly interesting observations of Mars, visual observations with a telescope located not too far from me over in Arizona, in Flagstaff, Arizona, is that the Curiosity team has reported the discovery of seasonal methane. Now, again, unless you follow the story, you probably don't know why that's intriguing. In fact, it's more than intriguing. 
Because over the years, beginning back in the 1990s, various astronomical observatories on Earth, big ones, have carried out observations of Mars looking for methane. Why methane? Because 99% of the methane produced on Earth now is of a biological origin. Everything from cow farts to the effluence of microbes to, you know, guys growing under the tundras to stuff coming off the uh, rainforests in South America, etc. It's all biological. So if you do a remote scan of the Earth and you're looking for methane, the methane you're seeing comes from living creatures, living organisms, the biosphere here on planet Earth. Well, by the same token, one of the key things that NASA and other folks have been looking for at Mars for years has been a signature of biological methane on the assumption that if we find methane, um, it will potentially be from life forms as opposed to inorganic processes. Well, the announcement on, um, on Thursday was very curious because the one measurement that they could have made on curiosity that they're going to be making on the European uh, mission called TGO, Trace Gas Orbiter, which launched uh, eight, nine months ago, arrived in Mars orbit, you know, actually more, more than that, arrived in Mars orbit several months ago and has been circularizing the orbit with a process called aerobraking. They're now in their proper, you know, 200-mile orbit above Mars to begin doing global sampling of, among other things, methane, trace gas orbiter. And on Earth, the key indicator that differentiates between methane that is created biologically, that is from life mechanisms, and non-biological methane is what's called an isotopic differentiation. Methane is composed of carbon and hydrogen, CH4, one carbon, four hydrogens. On Earth, 99% plus of the methane comes with carbon-14 as the isotope of carbon because biology, for some reason, and I've, I've seen you know various papers as to why, but biology seems to overwhelmingly prefer carbon-12 to carbon-13, which are the only two really stable isotopes of carbon. There's like 20-some other isotopes, and some of them have you know half-lives on the order of five 6,000 years, that's carbon-14. Others have half-lives of like 20 minutes, and others have half-lives of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. So the, the only two isotopes of carbon that we're worried about are basically 13 and 14 for stable biology. Well, the Curiosity instrument, which is called the uh, Tunable Laser Spectrometer, which basically beams laser light through 81 reflections in this little instrument inside Curiosity, you know, bounces it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to get what they call a long optical path length. That tunable laser is accurate enough to look at the methane and to decide, based on the measurements, whether the carbon in the methane is carbon-12 or carbon-13. And if it had been only carbon-12 or 99% carbon-12, that would have been a huge scientifically-based measurement 
indicating that on Mars, like on Earth, this seasonal methane, what do we mean by seasonal methane? It means methane that goes up and down with the Martian seasons. There's more of it in late summer than there is in, in the middle of winter. It goes up and down, up and down by a factor of three, which is huge in the thin, very, very sparse Martian atmosphere. Anyway, even though the instrument was calibrated and capable of making this crucial distinction between, quote, biological methane and non-biological methane, for some reason, and I've looked at the paper now several times, the NASA scientists never attempted to carry out the measurement that would tell them whether the methane was carbon-13 rich or carbon-12 rich. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, whoa, because that if they, if they made that measurement or if they had published that measurement, 99% of the world would go, oh my God, there's life on Mars. And they did not do that. Now, did they not do that, as one part of one uh, review said, because the accuracy of the uh, spectrometer in Curiosity was just not good enough, which is not true, or did they do that to stand aside so the Europeans, the European Space Agency, the guys that put together the TGO, the Trace Gas Orbiter, currently orbiting Mars, that just began the last couple, three weeks, its measurements of the uh, methane uh, on Mars and a few other trace gases, did they stand aside so that Europe can be the ones to announce that there is, quote, possible, likely life on Mars? Uh, I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm wondering, I'm very curious, but I don't know. Anyway, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's show, which is that gorgeous banner that Kinthea created for Chris, Chris Knowles, uh, that takes you to the guest page. Scroll down to Radio with Pictures. In my items, you'll see three stories. One, New Mars Discovery's advanced case for possible life. Number two, there may be life on Mars, but this NASA report doesn't prove it. And I think deliberately doesn't prove it, meaning we're dealing with political science, not real science. And we're going to talk about that later with Chris. And then item number three, which is really interesting, written by a guy named Matt Baer, not much intelligent life in Washington. Outer space is another story. And there's a very intriguing political take on NASA and on the DOD, you know, discussion some months ago of UFOs that you might want to take a look at. Now, that leads into our first guest tonight, which is John Francis. Let me give you some background on John Francis, and then we will take it away with a remarkably intriguing and very timely discussion of things that are kind of going bump in the night um, that we don't understand, but we, we probably should. John Francis is a retired college mathematics professor who has specialized in statistics and experimental design. He also has degrees in physics and physiology. In the early 1970s, he served in the Pacific 7th Fleet aboard a U.S. destroyer, a guided missile destroyer, as a naval officer in the command structure. 
1975, John had a profound near-death experience that permanently expanded his mind out of its previous, as he terms it, limited rational boundaries, and he now views life as a highly purposeful and multidimensional evolutionary expression of one universal consciousness. His areas of metaphysical expertise include sacred geometry, spiritual self-defense, and heart-centered meditation, and furthermore, he has deciphered numerical codes that unlock the deepest secrets of some key religious scriptures. John is the author of The Mystic Way of Radiant Life, and we have that posted in his bio. So without further ado, um, let me introduce John. John, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Good evening, Richard, and uh, thank you for giving some time to this very um, important um subject that really affects more people than they realize well this has Uh, been a story that we've been trying to cover and it's very hard because uh, all governments particularly the u.s government on this have been very very secretive and very cherry about advancing strange hypotheses so why don't you start as if people had never tuned in before limb out the problem starting in cuba and then describe how it seems to have now expanded Okay. It began in 2016 in Havana and uh, at the U.S. consulate there. And what happened was, over a period of time, 24 individuals began experiencing uh, headaches, nausea, hearing loss, hearing strange sounds, all kind of cognitive deficiencies and so forth. And it became a very... um, critical situation those people were evacuated and of course attempts were made on both sides to determine what was going on and the story seemed to have gone away for a while with the explanation presented that it was perhaps some type of malfunctioning a listening device you know a spy device that was maybe resonating with other devices and whatever causing these problems well I would like to say that if that happened, in other words, by accident, then someone now has discovered a method of creating all these symptoms. I'm sure they can back engineer it and creating all that. Okay, when you talk Uh, about symptoms, go into some of the uh, pathology because these are actual changes, physical changes in the brain. Right. Well, well, actually, it's being described as a concussion, uh, which is, of course, pretty severe. Uh, you know, headaches, nausea, dizziness, hearing loss, um, hearing strange sounds. Now, I don't really believe they're, those sounds are coming from some external source, but I believe that's probably the auditory center in the brain that's being stimulated. And, um, you know, cognitive deficiencies and so forth. So, I mean, they're incapacitating, basically, is what's happening. And if you move in one location, you hear it. And if you don't, you know, another and you know. I don't put too much stock in the details of the reports coming out because, you know, they're not scientific and they tell you what you want to hear and things get changed. Uh, But the bottom line is it sort of went away for a while until um, about a week ago, the New York Times came up with a story that in um, a major city in China, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Guangzhou, it's in southern China. It's near Hong Kong. 
and the U.S. has a consulate there. And it turns out to be one of the most important consulates in all of China, where the U.S. processes uh, passport applications and um, applications for adoption and so forth. So it's an important area. And what happened was one person started developing in the consulate there symptoms uh, very similar to what was going on in um, in Cuba, and this person happened to be a, a security engineer dealing with security and so forth. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Then, Meaning in, yeah. he was a technical person involved yeah, technical. with the with the consulate security pr- protocols. Correct. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, mm-hmm. or actual, you know, cybersecurity and so forth. I, Sweeping I for bugs, that, that kind of thing. Uh, perhaps. I'm not sure. I can't be sure. But anyway, he was, you know, that was he was there in that capacity. And then more recently, um, there have been some more people developing similar symptoms. There's two special apartment complexes that are, that the personnel are in and it's taking place there. And now as of May 23rd, we sent a major team over to, um, to China medical team to try and investigate what's going on. And there were suggestions in the New York times report that there are uh, more people than just those few that are mentioned. You yeah, know, so if, 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 if people go to the other side of midnight.com, right. click on the banner, go to Radio with Pictures, that's the page that will take you to, scroll down to John's items. You yeah. have three interest, actually four interesting news items there. Yeah. Mm, which well, people, number one is in your, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm saying people should, you know, go and refer to uh, after the show if they want more detail on this, but this is getting weirder and weirder. Now, it's getting even weirder because uh, after we talked and arranged for this show, then on Friday, uh, another report came out from um, over the AP that what's going on in Cuba is starting up again. Two more people developed the symptoms, making a total of number 25 and 26, a total of 26. And so... You know, there there we go. There's now, as I understand it, John. If you look at these stories in detail, some of these cases, because what the, what the U.S. government has done is to begin to screen all of its embassy personnel. Some of these cases of brain trauma, physiological changes in the brain, have happened without people reporting any symptoms. They haven't heard anything. They haven't seen anything. They haven't felt nausea or whatever. But they have physiological changes in the brain that look like massive concussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, well, that's that's a new twist on what's been going on. So in other words, there are some people, it, it may be what's going on is that people are being affected in different regions of the brain. You know, some people may be affected in sensory areas where they're, you know, they're triggering hearing sounds and some may be affected other places. You know, we, we don't have all the details, but... Uh, it's so basically why this is interesting is because it's really, you know, it's alerting us to how electronic devices, whether intentional or by accident, can have very profound and serious effects on people's uh, physiology. And we're about ready to go into the Internet of Things, where we'll all be immersed in five in this 5G technology and, you know, Leading us now to item three, these waves, these electromagnetic waves, this this ocean we're living in becomes a very 
good medium for modulating with technology that, you know, who knows what it is. Now, item number three is a very curious item. There is a, a website called um, Muckrock, okay? <laughs> and they requested, a, they did a freedom, up in Washington State, they made a feed, uh, um, freedom of information request to the Fusion Center in Washington. Now, most people know Fusion Center is where Homeland Security and local security and uh, police forces, they all sort of combine all their data. And, they, and the report had nothing to do with uh, this type of uh, problem we're dealing with. It had to do with the terrorist activities in the area, Antifa and white supremacist groups. But along with their request came back this very strange PDF sort of outlining, and you see a photograph of part of it in item four, sort of a graphical description of the ways that electromagnetic energy can be used for remote mind control. Now, uh, I find it interesting. Actually, this no one is claiming this is an actual CIA document. Uh, it's actually kind of old. It's One of the diagrams is 1974, and and so the question is, did, was this released by accident? Was it released intentionally? Uh, and well, we, that, we do yeah. know, John, there was an official CIA program which came out in the church oh, yeah. committee hearings called MK Ultra. Paul oh, Davids and I have discussed this. So we know the U.S. government has dabbled, more than dabbled, really looked at yeah. the idea mm -hmm. of remote mind control technology. So the mm -hmm. timing of this release, it's almost like someone wanted to remind people this is still going on even though we don't have current papers or current information that we can leak. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is Popular Mechanics covered the story, and they've been notorious for debunking anything that sounds conspiratorial. For example, they debunked the whole idea of, uh, you know, the buildings collapsing in an anomalous way on 9-11. Yes. And so I was astounded when they just gave a straightforward presentation of this this supposedly um, accidental release from from FOIA. They, I mean, it was an opportunity for them to debunk the whole thing, you know, and say it's ridiculous and all that. So it's almost like someone may want this to go out, either a white hat to warn us or alert us or someone that wants us to be afraid, very afraid, you know, or maybe get us on the wrong track and looking at this technology, which is maybe 40 years old, and uh, let people jump at this and say, oh, yeah, this is what's going on, when what's happening uh, may be something, well, probably is, could be very far in advanced uh, in the area of psychotronics or radionics, which is using energies and hyperdimensional hyper energies, you know, beyond electromagnetic or at least interfacing with it. Yeah, direct manipulation so, of the torsion yeah. field. You're right, absolutely. So, uh, you know, so this is this is where we are, and we're entering into an age where we're being monitored, we're being manipulated, and um, why I'm interested in this story from a metaphysical or spiritual point of view, is that there are spiritual practices. Um, the heart itself, the physical heart, the heart chakra, and we have a spiritual heart that's even deeper, uh, has the capacity to, um, to radiate, well, an electromagnetic field and all a psychic field and a spiritual field, which you could even call love. And research is now being developed, I mean, being done to show that the physical art itself 
uh, radiates a tremendously powerful magnetic electromagnetic field. And so there's also spiritual, spiritual fields being released that the mystics have talked about. There's actually a central sun that we tap into in our hearts. And your guest tomorrow night is going to be fascinating, talking about this this sun, which is I call, which metaphysically is called the central sun, just like on this physical plane, we have a physical sun, which really all life depends upon in our solar system. Well, metaphysically in the spiritual planes, it's a spiritual hyperdimensional plane beyond the physical realms where there's a, a spiritual sun. There's a sense always radiating um, higher consciousness and love. And we're entering into a time now in these cycles on earth where we're com- where this light is reaching more and more to the earth plane um, and there are techniques which I outline at the bottom of my bio, bio there's a link to an article I've written on this heart meditation, it's right at the very end, right before my book you can link to it and people can this for free PDF, read about different techniques for using breath and attention on the heart center which, cre- which can help you to create a field, both electromagnetic and a spiritual field around you, to make you less vulnerable to all these things that are either intentional or unintentionally having some very serious effects on people. So that's the positive aspect of what we can do. Well, it, it's important for people, particularly in the United States who are listening to the show, to think about protection and things they can do because for some reason, John, the targets of this attack, and I, and I say targets and attack very specifically because other personnel, other embassies in Havana or in China appear not to be affected except for the Canadians. I understand there were several cases of Canadians in Havana who also uh, suffered similar problems and, 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 and evidence, similar symptoms and that's intriguing, um, but it also appeared to take place not just at the embassies, but in their living locations, in their apartment complexes where they were living well Correct. well apart from the embassies. So it's like this appears to be some kind of weapon being tested primarily on Americans, initially in Cuba, and now suddenly appearing in China – and you look at this and you say, geopolitically, what in the world is going on and why are only these embassies and these personnel being targeted with a possible exception of a couple of Canadians? I mean, there's no there's no surficial thing that makes any rational geopolitical sense. And the question is, why aren't we able to sweep these uh, facilities? And if there are malfunctioning bugs, listening devices, why aren't we able to remove them? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Unless this is being done by a technology which is beamed in from outside or upstairs, or you know, yeah. some kind of drone hovering outside the window, or I mean, you can uh, expand the idea. But it, but in order to produce physiological effects in a human brain, equivalent to falling down a flight of stairs and smashing your head against the wall, that requires a lot of energy. It's very serious, and. Uh, yeah, so that's a serious problem. You can imagine the applications of this if it becomes if it if it's in a if it's in a sort of a trial stage and if it gets perfected, that's um, 
you know, when we haven't even talked about the idea of influencing someone's consciousness or putting thoughts in people's mind and all of this. Exactly. Um, and that's so becoming knowledgeable is very, very important. I'm sure there are technological devices to deal with this, but also it comes down to our consciousness. And I think one reason why this is all happening um, from a metaphysical point of view is it's really forcing us from an evolutionary point of view to develop these spiritual powers that we have within us to counter this. Einstein said that when you have a problem, you have to rise to find the solution on a level beyond which it was produced. So these are all happening on the physical and psychic plane. So it's going to become important for us to develop our spiritual Particularly as things develop, as we're going to hear later on the morning. John, we're at the bottom of the hour. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, John Francis, one of our experts on what's going on in the Asia-Pacific region. Former U.S. Naval officer. He had his own experience, which, thank goodness, was much more positive. When we come back, we're going to launch into some other strangeness. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. first hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the kinthea our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. 
Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night to the other side of midnight from the land of enchantment, the land of Native Americans. You can hear them out there over the sands and the dunes and the mesas. My primary guest tonight is Christopher Loring Knowles, who is the author of the Eagle Award winning Our Gods Were Standex. The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. He's also co-author of The Complete X-Files behind the series, The Myths and the Movies, and The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious, the mysterious Roots of Modern Music. You know, we should do a show some night, since we're all music lovers, and I would like to learn more about the secret history of rock and roll. I mean, there's a mythos out there that an awful lot of young very brilliant creative rock and roll artists are dying and have died at the age of 20 something 27 i think is the cutoff very curious chris was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time eisner award-winning comic book artist magazine as well as a writer and reviewer for the uk magazine classic rock chris has appeared on abc's 2020 and vh1's metal evolution and many other radio networks, including uh, Man Cow in the Morning, the National Public Radio, and The Voice of America. He's also appeared in several documentaries, such as Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth and the Man, The Myth of Superman, 
and invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Aslan Institute at Big Sur in California back in the 2000s. He regularly blogs, and you got to take this down. you got to go to something called The Secret Sun. And if you don't take one note from tonight's show, you got to look at tonight's, you know, The Secret Sun, because that's where Chris really, really shines, <clears throat> pun intended. So without further ado, Mr. Knowles, welcome to the other side. And you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Chris. Richard? You're there. Do you hear me? I hear you. Do, okay. Do you hear me? <laughs> I hear you fine. Oh, thank yeah. goodness. Thank goodness. Okay. Yeah, there's been weird electronic stuff going on tonight, talking about what John Francis was referring to. Someone has been nipping at our heels electronically, and we've got this team of, of people in the background fending them off with lances and thunderbolts and whatever. So, look, tonight's show is the secret history of the United States. I think you have tripped over, and that makes it sound kind of like serendipitous, and it's not because you've been looking and looking and digging and digging for decades into this, but you have found something so remarkable and so connecting about the early origins of the symbology around the formation of the United States of America that I think, as we're going to talk about later in the show, is going to become incredibly relevant as the months and the next year or so unfold, that I thought it was kind of time to do it. Now, remember, we wanted to do this show like a week ago, and you had problems. Someone smashed into your house with a truck and took out your internet, which is kind of, you know, kind of overkill. But you're on tonight, and we're going to start at the beginning. So set us up. What have you been pursuing that has now borne this extraordinary symbolic fruit? Well, there are two streams that we need to look at. First is the stream that I've been following for the past year on the blog pertaining to Las Vegas and, and that symbolism and the symbolism that we discussed on your show uh, pertaining to the um, Route 91 festival uh, tragedies. Um, the other stream that we're discussing here and that we're looking at in this context is the symbolism of star magic and that star magic is becoming increasingly important. And it's not just stars. Um, I'm looking at nebula and supernovas and these kinds of um, stellar and cosmic um, occurrences, disasters, some might say, however you choose to look at them, that seem to not only um, be important to a certain group of people, but also may have a, a powerful impact on life on Earth here. And how does that happen? Well, I'll tell you, um, a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with this, and I know that you are, Richard, but um, lightning in, in, in our biosphere is created by an antimatter that comes to the Earth's atmosphere. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We, we, we missed that because Skype dropped out. Lightning is created by what? By antimatter. Uh, are you sure? Uh, let me finish. Um, and what the um, antimatter is sourced from is cosmic rays. Now, cosmic rays um, are a very interesting topic and something that I'm sort of brand new to. 
but there seems to be a body of thought in the scientific community that cosmic rays have a very powerful impact on not only our atmosphere, but on our, our very DNA. And that um, certain supernova, you know, that are extremely powerful will have a transformative effect and perhaps even an evolutionary effect on the human creature. Now, I think that this is something that has been overlooked by people in this field, uh, people looking into symbology. Um, it may be that this understanding of these events and their effect on our DNA goes back hundreds of years. And the reason I say that is because of the work that I've done on the Great Seal. Now, people have been arguing about the Great Seal and debating the meaning of it and debating um, the origin. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the eye in the pyramid is definitively not a Egyptian symbol. Um, it's not Egyptian. The earliest um, examples of, of, of that really come from the Middle Ages and, and more specifically the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Chris, can I interrupt Wait. for a moment? There's some, weird, sure. there's some weird clicking on the line. I'm not sure whether it's coming from. Um, I hear it too. It sounds... Uh, it sounds like it's Skype, uh, Skype mm. artifacts. Very weird. It sounds weird. very distant to me, yeah. The natives are restless out there tonight. So, oh, maybe it's the cosmic rays. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is um, a really astonishing field of study that um, I stumbled upon and now have realized that it's of vital importance and um, it's really is virgin territory in, in regards to symbology, in regards to the study of esotericism, in regards to the study of secret societies. Now, I want to dispel some um, misconceptions. Uh, the, the Great Seal uh, of the United States that you know we see the obverse and the reverse on on the dollar bill. Um, the the committee to design that was convened by John Adams. Now, John Adams was not a Freemason. John Adams was actually not a fan of Freemasonry. In fact, his son, John Quincy Adams, ran on the um, ticket of anti-Freemasonry. Hmm. Uh, I'm getting a message. Wrong, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Okay. So, um, yeah, John Adams was... Uh, thought to be a member of what's called the Dragon Society. And the Dragon Society is a, a secret society um, that emerged during the Enlightenment in England and, and traces its lineage back, you know, I, probably back to the Merovingians. However, the, okay, the um, Great Seal. So the Great Seal Committee was convened in 1779 um, and reconvened uh, some years later. Now, what happened in between the original formation of the Great Seal Committee and the second convocation of this committee that created the seals that we are more familiar with today? Because if you look at the early seals, they're very much, they remind me of like the New York or the Massachusetts State Seal. They're very anonymous. They're very dull. Um, Oh, they look awful. In fact, this is a time when people need to go to radio with pictures. So, again, you go to the theothersideofmidnight.com. 
You'll click on the banner for tonight's show, The Secret History of the United States, that gorgeous uh, graphic that Kinthea, you know, created. Click on that. That takes you to the guest page. Scroll down to Chris Knowles' items, which are listed one, two, three, four, et cetera, et cetera. And we have, I think maybe item number three is a really good example. And these are all clickable. So if you click on them, they get much bigger of early versions of the Great Seal of the United States. And number three is so revelatory, so incredibly insightful, Chris. I mean, this is this is a find. This is a stunning find. Uh, it's rather amazing. It really is rather amazing. Um, now, let me just sort of back up and explain how this came about. And if people would like to uh, discuss this, they can go to the uh, just go to uh, do a search on secretsun.blogspot.com, and then the title of the post is "The Great Seal Decoded." Finally, now I've been looking into Lyra, and I've been looking into Lyra since Las Vegas. Because yeah, hang on, it, hang on. We have to describe what Lyra is. Okay, Lyra is the brightest star in the constellation. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. <laughs> Lyra is a constellation uh, in in the in, in the northern sky. Um, it's next to Cygnus. Now, Cygnus, the the space between Cygnus and Lyra is where the Kepler telescope project has been focusing on, uh, as far as the search for ex, extrasolar planets. Now, Cygnus is called the Northern Swan. And these are these are parts of the summer constellation in the northern hemisphere called the Great Triangle, and right next to it is Lyra, which is a harp, a musical instrument, not very big, but very important, and now apparently really, really important to the founding fathers of this nation. Yes, and the the proof of that is in the Great Seal, both sides, incidentally. Now. The introduction of Lyra into the Great Seal came about during the first gathering of the Great Seal Committee under John Adams. For some reason, John Adams and and his son, John Quincy Adams, both had uh, a special reverence for the constellation of Lyra. And again, the, the brightest star in that system is Vega, now, which is part of the Summer Triangle. Um, I'm still trying to dig into exactly what the significance of Lyra was to these gentlemen at this period in time. However, there's been a, a number of symbols emerging in the media, not the least of which was during uh, the Las Vegas episodes, um, where we're seeing Lyra pop up and seem to be of some importance. And, and people will go, well, what does that mean? You know, I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, let me give you an example. You remember um, the so-called uh, attack on Syria, the, the, the um, retribution for the use of chemical weapons, allegedly, um, during an operation against uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Now, the attack, everybody knows that the attack took place on Friday the 13th. So very interesting symbolism there. But it also took place during the start of the Lyrids. Now people go, well, what are the Lyrids? The Lyrids are a media shower 
that seems to be emerging from the, the space in the sky of the Lyra constellation and of Vega. And Vega is, you know, the, the orientation point for this constellation because of the stars are around. Yeah, and we should say that meteor showers have nothing to do with stars that are thousands or hundreds or even tens of light years away. They're basically solar system phenomenon. The Earth crosses some ancient comet trail of debris, bits and uh, rubble, pebbles, dust, whatever, and these intersect with the Earth's atmosphere. They enter at very high speed, and they burn up, and they produce these shooting stars, which are not stars, called meteors. Um, but in, in, in a particular set of months, uh, I forget the actual months, there is a, there is a, 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 a group of meteor shower, of meteors in a shower that come from the direction of this constellation of Lyra called the Lyrids. So continue, please. Exactly. Now, this was very curious to me because if you saw the imagery from the um, rather strange and, and, and apparently ineffectual missile attack on these um, alleged bases, uh, alleged plants in Syria, um, they look like meteor showers. And it occurred during the start, during the opening of a meteor shower. And a little bird in, in my head, you know, this little voice seemed to say, maybe there's some connection here. Maybe there's some connection between what looks like a meteor shower and, and the actual opening of a meteor shower in this constellation, which seems to be of primary importance. Now, the reason why this is important as well, because for some reason, the Lyra Vega has some connection to Orion and specifically the belt of Orion. And that month of October where so much was happening, where, where we saw the, um, uh, the Tom DeLong to the stars thing, we saw the, the situation at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas and, and on and on and on. There was so much going on. Uh, it was very hard to keep track of. There was a lot going on with the space program. Mike Pence went out to uh, the, the desert, the uh, Mojave Desert to, to deal with um, Richard Branson's operation, the Virgin operation and so on and so forth. But this was all during the Orionids. Now, the Orionids are, again, a meteor shower that seems to emerge from the direction in space um, in the vicinity of Orion, and specifically Orion's belt. Now, the, the significance of this is that the term um, for um, the, the, the Orion's belt was known as the, uh, the String of Pearls, but it was also identified, Orion and, and, you know, the belt and the Orionids were all identified with um, fallen angels and with the Nephilim and these sort of, you know, these mythical characters that you read about in the Bible and so on. That um, the, uh, the, the meteor shower was actually called the Nephalia in, in Aramaic. So there's a lot of strange connections. There seems to be this nexus this sort of axis point between Lyra and Orion. And I have absolutely no idea what the connection is so far, but there seems to be some conjunction. There. Well, you're on the trail. Yep. Now, Now the, the, the Lyrids are there's this annual meteor stream. The Earth crosses this ancient cometary trail of debris orbiting the sun like a elliptical ring, if you can imagine in space, a very sparse, very, very, very infrequently populated ring of stuff orbiting the sun and we go through it once a year 
turns out to be about the, between the 16th and 25th of April, peaking this year on the weekend of April 20th, 22nd. Uh, that's the Lyric Meteor Stream. Now, there's much more interesting deep space connections to Lyra we're going to get into later in the morning here. But for some reason, the founders, particularly John Adams and his son, were really taken by Lyra having, I would, I would assume you would agree, Chris, very little, if anything, to do with this annual kind of faint meteor, meteor shower. Well, that's open to interpretation. But um, the... the significance of Lyra. By the way, we think the it, clicking is coming from your mic or your mic cord or something. So if you can duct tape it down or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, now back to, to Lyra and the, um, the media shower. Um, what had happened in the constellation of Lyra between the first and second gatherings of the great seal committee was the appearance of the Ring Nebula. Now, the Ring Nebula is is a fascinating object uh, in space. When you say appearance, you mean the discovery? Yes. Well, the, the appearance, uh, exactly, the discovery. And that was in 1782. So that was you know smack dab in the middle of a very heady and exciting period in revolutionary America. Now... It is my contention, it's my belief that this event was seen as a sign. And it's the reason why uh, Anuit Keptis appears on the Great Seal, which is he has favored our undertakings. Now, this is a, um, a quote from Ovid and refers to Jupiter. Now, I believe that this ring nebula, when it was discovered, became encoded into the great seal on the obverse as that cloud of stars, that, that hexagram of stars above the eagle's head. Yeah, if, if people want to see a very modern, incredible, real color image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of the famed ring nebula in Lyra, you go back to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's show, The Secret History of the United States, click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page, scroll down to... Chris's items, item number four is the modern Great Seal of the United States on the left, and on the right, it's a double spread. There's this beautiful, amazing, real color image of the Ring Nebula taken by Hubble, and the glows and the colors of the gases are due to the resonant spectral lines of this spherical, and in, in this case, uh, quasi-lenticular, meaning flat-planed, almost looking like Saturn nebula expanding uh, into space around a dying star, a white dwarf in the center. And this was discovered twice within a month of each other in 1782. The first discoverer, turns out now, was Charles Messier, the famed amateur astronomer in France who, who created what's called the Messier catalog of all kinds of interesting celestial things in the sky, and then there was an unknown astronomer who for years, I forget his name, <clears throat> has been uh, credited with discovering the Ring Nebula. It looks like he didn't discover it until February of 1782, and Messier discovered it at the end of January. And science historians have now figured that all out, and they've kind of recalibrated 
uh, Messier's description in his in his language in French, which indicates that uh, uh, to, to those to earlier generations that it was this other astronomer who made the actual discovery, whereas in fact he's alluding to the vision, the, the viewing of the Ring Nebula after Messier himself had discovered it, and this all happened in the in the in the in the birth throes of the United States and of course our intimate linkage with France, you know, from Lafayette and L'Enfant and those famous people. So there's this very deep celestial kind of hidden connection to the events birthing this nation that had almost what you said a moment ago looks like a major symbolic victory on the celestial front of something very important, something amazing seen in the sky that was newly discovered right in the process of giving birth to the country. That's exactly right. And I be- again, I believe that this was seen as... The as an omen, as a sign. Yeah, as a heaven. sign from the heavens. The sign from the heavens. Now, oh, I just wanted to um, correct uh, my chronology here. The, the first, the first uh, Great Seal Committee was formed in 1776, actually, and the second was formed in, uh, in 1782. And then the Ring Nebula was discovered in 1779. Now, the name of the French astronomer who discovered it before Messier was Antoine Dacquier de... It's a very, uh, it's one of those uh, landmine French words <laughs> that's just full of, uh, you know, uh, consonant sounds that um, are, are foreign to our tongue. Anyhow, <laughs> now, um, the reason that this became so apparent to me is that I've been spending a lot of time looking at star maps and looking at constellations and looking at the shapes of them and the forms of them because. One thing that we can discuss, if you're interested, is is my belief that the um, the Beauty and the Beast films um, incorporate uh, a trip through the the zodiac and the surrounding constellations, and uh, each one of the fi- the characters in in that those films are um, symbolizing uh, a particular constellation, and this is what I'm saying about this whole idea of star magic. Now, when I was looking at at um, Vega and Lyra, there's a very interesting sort of um, parallelogram that's formed by four of the major stars. And when I was just looking at it, and I was looking at the... Um... Tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Chris Knowles, and we're talking about the secret, hidden, clandestine, and incredibly meaningful celestial symbology that was incorporated into the founding of the United States, particularly in the emblem of the United States, the Great Seal. And we're going to be getting into very deep water or deep space as we pursue this through the rest of the morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>